Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. We hope you're doing well, and thank you so much for listening. Uh, Be sure to check us out at apologetics.org and follow us on social media at the C.S. Lewis Society. Well, we have a very special guest today, and in fact, he's so special that he's not even a guest. He's an anti-guest, I guess you could say, because this is his show. Dr. Woodward, how are you doing today? (laughs) Well, I've been called lots of things through the years, but uh, I I will treasure this moment when I'm called the anti-guest, of course, and the anti means in place of a guest, not not against a guest. Of course, anti, the Greek preposition, has dual meaning. So I'm glad that I've replaced the guest by by, by being the non-guest who actually is the main speaker on the show. It's great to be back. Great to be with you every week. Absolutely. It all works out. Yes. God's dancing hand of sovereign provision of all that we need. You know, it's just amazing. We're going through uh, with a men's group here in Clearwater, Florida, where I teach, of course, uh, through C.S. Lewis Society, but also Trinity College of Florida. And we always like to dive into the nitty-gritty of God's grace, God's goodness. And we're reading a very interesting book called The Ragamuffin Gospel by uh, a late, the late author Brendan Manning. Uh, is with Jesus now, but has an amazing set of stories that he shares in that book. And I, I agree with about probably 97% of the book. It's a great book. And uh, so we just are just reveling in the reminders of God's grace. And to me, that's what I'd like to, with your, with your concurrence, Nick Shalna, I'd love to talk about the grace of God and what, it's, what it really is attractive. And this is part of apologetics, you know, part of the tug that draws us at the level of our mind and analysis and reasoning and all that good stuff up in the head. But he also tugs in our heart and calls, calls us out of our old life into this fantastic new life with Christ. So I'd like to head into... I guess, you know, we could refer to it as Gospel Apologetics 101. Yeah, I'm excited for this part, part when you wanted to do a multi-part series. Yes, and so this is the launch, really, the launch platform. So we'll go ahead and use that as, uh, you might say, the moniker, the name for today's program. And then we will go into, uh, we'll, we'll sink the, the proverbial mine shaft into the gold of God's riches, the God's Gospel Apologetics. And this will include some new stuff, you know, some new thinking and fresh approaches and apologetics and really what spins out of or extends out of the core message of Christ, why he came to the earth to redeem us and what's involved in both the deep dive and then the coming back up as he breaks the water holding the precious dripping thing that he went down to get, namely us. So um, with your permission, I'm ready to go if you are. Permission granted. Thank you. Well, you know, I I was trying to think through my own experience of discovering the grace of God. And, you know, we all have our story, if we are Christians, of how either as a child or as a teen, maybe as an adult, even as a senior adult, we finally discovered that gospel message is true. And we, we understood it. 
we realize that we are lost and that Christ extends his hand down to us and says, by grace alone, not by your good works, not by any achievement or merit, not by any deserving it, but totally of my bounty and goodness to you, I will save you through my Son, God says, and and the Son of God himself. God, fully God, became fully man and became one of us and, of course, penetrated earth uh, history at that, at that tiny point, that little pinhole point of Bethlehem. And then, of course, as you move from um, the, the 12 years, or maybe it was less than that, maybe less six or seven years, whatever it was in Egypt, they came back, settled in Nazareth, and then finally when Jesus went public with his mission as Messiah, the rest is history. And, of course, that is the hinge of history, and that is the gospel hinge as well. And it's historical. You can check it out, but it tugs at our heart. And so to me, I like to organize, you know, and this is something I didn't fully understand until I was a freshman in college because I had kind of rejected Christianity. I thought you couldn't be a, a scientifically-minded person and be a Christian. I thought that's just for weak-minded people. And so I'm studying at an Ivy League university. I thought, no. I'm beyond any of that kind of primitive stuff. I know that God, if he exists, he doesn't certainly reverse the course of nature. He doesn't do miracles. And then someone was uh, so bold as to ask me on that same campus up in New Jersey, you know, well, how do you know? Do you know a priori? Do you know in advance what this God is like and the powers that he has if he does exist? And I said, oh, well, no, maybe I don't know. So I had to rethink at the age of 19. I had to reevaluate and kind of go back and revisit my rejection of the Christian faith, the Christian message. And that's when, after six months of discussion, I finally did embrace Christ at the end of my freshman year at Princeton. And it was just the, the Copernican revolution. I thought, you know, I was the center of the universe you know, like with the old geocentrism, the earth is the center of the universe. And then I realized that the sun, uh, you know, again, talking about heliocentrism of Copernicus, now I found that the sun, S-O-N, is the center mm-hmm. of the spiritual universe. And so um, I'd like to go through this really quickly today and kind of sketch out where we're going over the next, oh, about six or seven weeks. And we're going to be, again, doing a deep dive in many of these points. But I want to begin seven points. I'll call this the seven-point whammy of gospel apologetics. Uh, it's kind of, a, a, kind of a strange name, but I'm going to use that today. Uh, each of these points carries some weight. Number one point, and this is where, again, uh, the truth of Christianity can be presented convincingly to a skeptic, even by just explaining the core of what the Christian message is all about. And as we explain, and then later as we have need to defend that Christian uh, message and that worldview, God works through our words because our words reflect truth. They reflect reality. I mean, there are evidence, lines of evidence and lines of factual data that can be checked out. We hear a lot in this kind of time of the current campaign for president. Oh, this presidential candidate doesn't believe in facts or evidence, or that presidential candidate doesn't believe. Well, leaving that to one side, facts and evidence do count. So the first thing uh, that we know, and this is in the seven-point way, we, we know we have failed. We know down deep we have not kept 
God's righteous commandments, his laws, his uh, points of moral value. We have not kept them perfectly. We failed, and if we're thinking clearly, we fail them every day. And this is one of the great down-deep truths that resonates in human nature, because you do not really need to argue this point. Secondly, the second point in the seven-point whammy is that judgment, we know, follows moral betrayal. In other words, God, if he's true to his system of moral betrayal, I mean, those who betray morality turn their backs on right living and right thinking and, and do not love the good. And, of course, God is the embodiment of the good. But turn toward evil, turn toward self, away from the righteous um, path that we know we should have trod, then we know that judgment comes. Judgment must follow moral betrayal. And after those two initial points, which, by the way, are presented by C.S. Lewis in the opening five chapters of the book Mere Christianity, if I can just recommend a reading uh, that really goes along with this, he, he explains how we can even know that God exists just from the consideration of right and wrong. So right and wrong, the fact that it's right to, to love my neighbor and to sacrifice f for the good of others. It's wrong to kill, to uh, commit uh, acts of racial injustice, and all th whatever negative you know, behavior that we know down deep is just horrific and abominable. So those two points that we know we have failed repeatedly and judgment follows moral betrayal, those truths set up for the good news, and that's the rest of the five points in this seven-point whammy. Um, let me just say that, uh, Nick, you and I have been discussing Clay Jones, yes. professor out of Talbot, and I think it's time that we put up his famous speech in front of a big auditorium out in the West Coast Church. I think it's time for us to put that YouTube up on our apologetics.org platform, platform. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that'd be awesome. Okay, well, I am hereby commissioning you, working with Paul Tahira at Digital Light Bridge, to do that. Woohoo! I feel so good. Apologetics.org. <laughs> yes. The best yeah. website in the world. Yes, yeah. well, for apologetics at least. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, Clay Jones, brilliant lecturer at Biola University. He will uh, just blow you away. I've shown this video lecture. And it's, it's, it's a lecture that has you gripped. You're gripped. I mean, he holds you in the palm of his hand because this is truth. This is biblical truth, but it's down deep truth. And so uh, his amazing lecture on the reality of moral evil and, and just how crazy it is and how utterly sinful sin is. Let me repeat that, how utterly and horrendously sinful sin is. Clay Jones, professor, who's actually written a great book, 2017, on this topic. Uh, but that uh, video will go up as of this weekend. It is up. That's right, I think, if, I re if my technical data holds correct. So point one and point two, we know we failed. Judgment follows moral betrayal. Point three, the scriptures of the solution, that is, Christ dying in our place. So the scriptures, which detail the solution, Christ dying in our place, are just shocking. They're compelling, they're haunting, and downright shocking. And so that's the third point of gospel apologetics, that as you read Isaiah 53, it's not a long chapter, it's just 12 verses, 
but each of those 12 verses is like a is like an a bomb it's like a micro targeted uh, spiritually powerful uh, shattering just shocking uh, advance view given 700 years before Christ that this one that God would send, the suffering servant, would die for others. He, without sin, would die for those who were loaded with sin. And that is just reading Isaiah, verses 1 through 12. It's Again, it's just a short chapter, verses 1 through 12, that's the whole chapter. And especially from verse 4 onward, it's just loaded, it's just jam-packed with descriptions of the Messiah dying in the place of the sinful people who are attacking him. The same thing is even seen in Psalm 22. That's another great passage. And um, the end of both of those chapters, by the way, have plugged into them, um, built right into the text, a hint. And sometimes it's even more than a hint. It's a clear indicator of resurrection, that the one who's dying would not remain dead. So the scriptures of Christ dying in our place, the solution, are shocking, compelling, and haunting. Point four, the life of Christ Okay, so when he comes and he begins to fulfill these, these prophecies, the life of Christ, his holiness, you know, the fact that he could say, which one of you convicts me of wrong or sin or evil? He said that in John chapter 8. His, his own family, you know, probably was in a state of shock that they, he never messed up growing up as, as a young man and as a Jewish uh, teacher. He was constantly on the move, constantly facing challenges that would have made any of us blow it and lose our temper or do something sinful. But he was living a life of holiness. But in his teaching, he kept teaching and teaching, and everybody said, we've never heard teaching like this. It was an authoritative teaching. And, and thirdly, there was healing. There was this powerful, at least 35 individual acts of powerful healing or other kinds of miracles are recorded in the Gospels, and there's probably another two to three hundred that he did in addition to those 35 if you look at the various places in scripture where it says and Christ did many other miracles here and Christ did many other miracles there so we're looking at 35 occasions of spectacular entry into the laws of physics and chemistry reordering of DNA and molecular structures made out of proteins by the trillions upon trillions to heal people or to produce fish for the 5,000 people that were hungry out there listening to Jesus preach. So point four again, the life of Christ, his holiness, his teaching, his healing, are intrinsically compelling. The life of Christ displayed for us to see in the record of Scripture, written right after he died, those are uh, intrinsically compelling. Point five, the claims of Christ are ultra-shocking. So the claims of Christ are an indicator of, wait a minute, who is this? Who is that young man? Uh, we used to say, who was that masked man of the Lone Ranger? Hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lone Ranger. Oh Yeah, I've, I've heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> you may not have actually seen one of the episodes, but you've heard of it. Yeah. And as he rides off with Tonto into the sunset, who was that masked man? Well, no one knows, but um, he still is the hero of the plot. Well, Christ is this strange one. He's not masked, but he in a way is, because there is a humanity, but there's something lurking behind that humanity. It's genuine humanity, check off all the boxes, but there is a dual 
person. In other words, he's a one person with two natures. He's fully man, but he's also fully God, and he makes that clear. And one of our points uh, in our survey of gospel apologetics, we're going to go deep into this, and I'm excited that we're going to be able to share the wise man uh, summary, W-I-S-E-M-A-N. Each of those letters of wise man uh, relates to one of these powerful claims of Christ to be more than man, to be fully God. So point five again, the claims of Christ themselves of as to who he was, that he was not just a man, but that he was the Messiah, that he was the intrinsic creator God of the universe, are ultra-shocking. And so are you ready for point six? Yes. Good, good, good. Okay, point six, here it is. Are you ready? Wait for it. The resurrection was predicted not only in the Old Testament, but in the actual um, very tight uh, timeline, you might think, of, of Christ's own life. He was only uh, 30-some, mid-30s when he died. He only ministered for three years. But in the very uh, ti- you know, times of stress and challenge and pushback he got from the Jewish leaders, they kept saying, show us a proof. Demonstrate that you are the Messiah. You know, make us, show us, indicate clearly to us that you are who you claim to be. And repeatedly, Jesus said over and over, one sign I will give you, that I will be in the belly of the fish like Jonah, the belly of the earth, like the belly of the fish of Jonah. And after I'm in and die and I'm in the belly of the, of the, of the earth, I will come forth again. I will rise again. So there is a power in Jesus' own prediction. There's an intrinsic power that comes when, okay, you want a, a daring prediction, and that's what science always asks for in the Popperian falsification way of testing a theory. It asks that theory to stick its neck out, to make a risky prediction. And if you can make a risky prediction in the context of some new theory, and then it comes true, Guess what? As that risky prediction is met, as it actually takes place, as predicted, the event uh, recorded carefully under scrutiny of neutral or even hostile witnesses, that boosts the credibility. It confirms further the credibility, if there was any question about it, of the statement, the, um, the, the thesis, uh, the claim that was set forth. And then last but not least, the great culminating and capstone point of the seven-point whammy of gospel apologetics is that the resurrection evidence of Christ having been raised from the dead three days after he was uh, put to death on the cross is a literal, rich, boundless gold mine. It's like a tsunami. It's like a tidal wave of evidence that comes at us with tremendous force and impressive um, validation through scholarship, not only um, those who wrote down the eyewitnesses who saw Christ alive, and they're recorded right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They're also recorded uh, unique encounters with Christ in the book of Luke chapter 24. Uh, There are references of people seeing Christ in other locations of Scripture. We'll, We'll explore a number of those. But the most exciting thing, I think, that we can see that has happened in our time, and this is part of the story, is that professional 
New Testament scholarship has turned from just bland doubt about Christ and now has pivoted to actually admitting that the early church 100% believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, that it wasn't just his words that were somehow still active, but not only his words, but that he, the very body that was executed on the cross, had come back to life. Jesus was alive, and that he was the powerful ruler of the earth, although not ruling politically, but he was the spiritual king of the universe, and he was in the process of eventually coming back to take his rule on the earth, as he predicted, uh, of course, in the Olivet Discourse uh, in Matthew chapter 24, etc. So, um, are you excited about gospel apologetics? Yes, I, I'm very excited about it. I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to the rest of this series unfolding. And something I usually tell my students is that Jesus Christ not only fulfilled everything that was uh, said that the Messiah would fulfill on earth, but he did more. And so what I usually tell them is that let's say he came and did less, or let's say I were going to sell you uh, an Xbox and you showed up and instead of getting the Xbox, I gave you some kind of cheaper version of it that doesn't, that doesn't hook up to the TV, right? Or that doesn't uh, connect right to the internet. Well, I would be giving you less than what you paid for. But Jesus had the option to come and do more than people expected, and that's what he did. They expected just a kingdom on earth, but he, he gave us the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's a great point. I, maybe I will in, in, include that in point uh, seven of my outline. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things is that the, the idea of Jesus as fully God, and you know, he, here's, the, here's, the, here's the kicker, and this is where C.S. Lewis comes in, he says, he can't be just a good teacher. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I have met people who say, oh, I, I believe that Jesus was a great teacher. Well, see, that, that option is not open to us. He didn't leave it open. Because if he claimed to be the one who would judge at the end of the world, all mankind, when he did very clearly, if he claimed to be the one who had never sinned, if he claimed to have been eternal and have been around when Abraham was in John chapter 8, and on and on. All these claims that Jesus made are beyond staggering, and if they're true, then he was Lord. If they're false, then he wasn't even a good teacher. He was a terrible teacher, a liar, a, mis, uh, a misleader of the people, one who was either a, a psychotic case, you know, someone who is totally just thinking there's something or someone that they're not. Or, or, like I said, a madman uh, um, slash liar situation. So um, back to you, Nick Shauna. I thank you for the uh, opportunity to explore this topic with you in the coming weeks. Yes, absolutely. And I just can't wait for this series to continue to unfold. So make sure you come back here and check it out. We're going to be talking about Gospel Apologetics 101. We will teach you how to do gospel-centered apologetics and be sure to check out apologetics.org you'll see a featured video on there by randy newman from the why jesus conference uh, thank you for listening and before you go check out the short message from our friends at dna and beyond welcome to the world of scientific discovery i'm jim huta and it's been my privilege to practice as a perinatal cardiologist for over 35 years looking at the fetal heart as it develops in utero before the baby is born 
We now know that the fetal heart development is controlled by DNA, but more importantly, there's a whole new code in a new area called epigenetics. Methyl tags, which are the signals or control molecules for the development of the fetal heart. Also, check out the dynamic colored DNA model. This is the only existing model that includes the DNA methylation molecules. You'll see methylation tags which attach to various portions of the DNA in order to control how it does its job. In our website, we hope to expose you to new advances in this area of epigenetics in our epigenetics section. Come and join us today at DNA and Beyond. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.